Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hello, I'm Charles Robinson. Welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, I think we all can agree we would like to have clean air and water. After years of wrangling over improving infrastructure, help appears to be on the way. The Biden administration is poised to transform a system which can give us clean air and water with a federal infusion of $1.2 trillion to assist in infrastructure improvements. This is a once-in-a-lifetime amount. So what's in store? We'll look at issues facing Maryland and specifically Baltimore. You'll hear from Mike Ewall of the Energy Justice Network and Fred Tupman, who just happens to be the Patuxent River Keeper. Ewall and Tupman have been on the ground and sounding the alarm for years. Later in the show, we'll also hear from the new executive director of Blue Water Baltimore, Tony Bridges. We'll hear his ideas of changing the paradigm in an urban environment. All of that coming up on Future City. We kick off our show, however, with a pair of reporters who have been reporting on the environmental issues in Maryland. Joel McCord of WYPR and Tim Wheeler, the associate editor and senior writer at the Bay Journal. I'm joined by Joel McCord of WYPR. He covers environmental issues in the state. Tim Wheeler is the associate editor and senior writer at the Bay Journal. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here on Future City. I want to begin with a status report on where we are when it comes to air and water. Joel, let's begin with you. Uh, the state has put in some targeted goals as it relates to clean air. What are the goals and who has the state targeted for reducing emissions in the air? Well, the goals, Charles, are to get things like nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, mercury emissions as low as possible to meet federal standards. And according to a report that the state put out just in April, that they are well on their way to meeting those standards. The only issue is ozone, eight-hour ozone levels. And uh, according to the state, that's going down as well. But we're downwind from a lot of states that don't meet those standards, and it's getting blown into, into Maryland. And the state is taking some action with EPA to try to mitigate those problems. Tim, I want to talk to you about the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. You know, it's been tracking water pollution in the Bay and annually gives the waterway a report card. Where are we and what challenges do does the Bay face? Well, Charles, there are, uh, you know, uh, the Bay Foundation has been uh, tracking water quality for quite some time. They've been producing a report card on a uh, every two-year basis since 1998. And their most recent report card, which looked back, you know, for the last couple of years, came out in January. It gave the Bay a D plus, just a little above failing. 
And that was a, a bit of a, has been as high, as high as a C minus a couple of years before that. But, you know, a lot of the Bay water quality, uh, like a lot of environmental air and water quality indicators, is driven in, in, in good part by weather. And uh, we suffered, a, as you'll remember, some record rainfall in uh, 2018 and 2019. And that tended to wash a lot of uh, nutrient pollution into the Bay. So that sort of pushed things back a bit, at least for the time being. Gentlemen, both of you know that the Biden administration has gotten an infrastructure bill across the finish line. I'd like to know, what is it going to mean for the state? Joel, um, they're going to be putting some more money into the coffers of both uh, Maryland and through the Environmental Protection Agency. What is that going to mean for air quality? For air quality, well, mostly we're talking, in that case, we're talking about bay restoration efforts in order to reduce the amount of nitrogen and, and other pollutants going into the bay. As far as air quality goes, because of Maryland's Healthy Air Act, 2006, the state has been regulating power plants pretty heavily, and those power plants are gradually closing. There was a bill last session in the General Assembly forced them to close, and it eventually was pulled by uh, the House sponsor because they realized that all these, uh, all these power plants are closing anyway within the next 8, 10 years. And what are we replacing them with? Any ideas? Oh, wind, solar, um, natural gas, natural gas, re renewable natural gas, which a number of folks have a problem with. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Tim, uh, as far as the, uh, the water quality, there have been a number of efforts over the years. Um, are they going to help improve? Because, you know, you and I had a conversation about a D. I don't care if it's a plus, it's a D. It's, you know. It's daggone near failing, you know. What is that? What is the Biden administration thinking about when it comes to cleaning up the Bay? The Biden administration and, and Congress really have been pushing more money towards the Bay program, the the federal state cooperation or partnership, whatever you want to call it, uh, that works on restoring Bay water quality and restoring the Bay in general. And there have been a series of agreements that were signed since uh, 1983 goes back that far. So it's been a very long running effort. Uh, it's made some progress in some areas. Uh, the, the nutrient pollution loads are lower in, in thanks in large part to heavy investments in upgrading wastewater treatment plants, you know, sewage treatment plants that treat domestic and commercial and industrial waste, but runoff from farms and from suburban and urban settings uh, are the dominant source of pollution these days. And they're much harder to get under control. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed just passed uh, Congress and is being signed by President Biden includes a lot of additional money for the Bay Initiative in there. We're talking about about a 50% increase in funding. I know this, Tim, that uh, there was a concerted effort to look at the entire watershed. And one of the feeders into the Chesapeake Bay is the Susquehanna River. And I know they had some difficulty with the state of Pennsylvania taking this seriously. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's um, the progress in that this area has been uneven and Pennsylvania has been uh, the big laggard. Part of the, the, the main problem from their perspective, from the Pennsylvania's perspective, is that they recognize they have to do a lot more. Uh, they don't have the resources. The legislature has not seen fit 
to raise the either to budget the money or to raise the money through additional revenues, taxes, fees, whatever. And so they're uh, well short of what they need to commit in terms of money from their plan to make their plan work. The uh, states of Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and the District of Columbia, along with environmental groups, have sued EPA for not doing more to basically get Pennsylvania in gear. The Bay cleanup since 2010 has been under a thing called a total maximum daily load, which is, uh, you know, a popular term for it is a pollution diet that was drawn up by EPA with the cooperation of the states. And they gave every state a target of how much you had to reduce your nutrient and sediment pollution by 2025. Most of the states are more or less on track that all have some, some things they need to do. Uh, and there's still a lot of ways to go, but Pennsylvania has not been on track from almost the get-go. And, you know, there's a, a real concern because that's where the bulk of the pollution that affects at least the upper part of the bay uh, comes from. The, the Susquehanna is uh, is uh, half the freshwater, I think it is, 40% to 50% of the freshwater coming I, into the I bay. I believe, Tim, I believe, Tim, it's more than all the other, yeah, 40, 50%, yeah. more than all the other tributaries combined. Right. I want, I want to talk about nutrient runoff, uh, Joel, because one of the things that was pretty clear is, is that uh, there was a lot of runoff from farms. I know that we're in a particular mode right now where farmers have are asked, being asked to put in cover crops. First of all, explain what a cover crop is and what does it do to uh, mitigate nutrient runoff into the bay? Well, a cover crop is just about anything that will hold the soil, hold the nutrients in there, grasses, wheat even, I suppose, uh, other kinds of crops that will hold on to the, to the soil and, and soak up the nutrients that would otherwise be washing off into the bay. I note that um, a lot of times farmers were kind of resistant to this idea. Have they come around to it? Pretty much the issue more than worrying about cover crops is the the amount of pollution from chicken farms, from the, the nutrients or the, the manure, the chicken manure that's applied as fertilizer to a lot of these farms. Um, the uh, Environmental Te Integrity Project uh, put out a study last week that said the departments of the environment and agriculture are falling down on, on regulating those farms. And in a lot of cases, they can't get to the farms that have a lot that are using a lot of manure as fertilizer. I note that, you know, um, there are some innovative ideas associated with cleaning the air and cleaning the waterways. Joel, I heard something very unusual about putting the carbon monoxide from power plants into the ground. Are there any other kind of, I want to call it out there kind of solutions to the problem about air? That's one of the most out there ones I can think of. There is, as we started to mention, the renewable natural gas. Uh, the idea is to create methane and natural gas from from garbage, basically, and then they keep recirculating that. So we're talking biodigesters is what you're talking about. Yeah, right, right. right. exactly, exactly. And on the uh, uh, excuse me, Joel, on the Delmarva, they're actually going to be processing some of that chicken manure, right, into biogas in a plant in in Delaware, still in the Bay Watershed, but uh, and a lot of that will be coming from from Maryland farmers as well as De you know Delaware. Yeah, and that's one that's run into some controversy uh, with fo folks like Food and Water Watch. 
Tim, is there anything that uh, is on the horizon? I know that, you know, there have been efforts in the Bay to clean it up using oysters. How is that going? Well, oyster restoration is a, is a, is a monumental undertaking when you consider that our, you know, the, the estimates of the current population of oysters in the Bay are one or two percent of what they were historically. There's been a long slide for the oyster, you know, the sort of the, the iconic uh, shellfish of the bay and it, uh, keystone species, really, because they build their own habitat for, for themselves and for fish. Uh, they help filter the water, you know, and they were a major uh, income source for, uh, for, you know, fishermen in the bay for a long time. The Bay Agreement in 2014, Maryland and Virginia each pledged to restore five bay tributaries each to do large-scale restoration. Uh, they're on track. They finished the initial work of building up reefs and seeding them with oysters in uh, six of those 10 tributaries, and it's three each, I believe, um, and they're still working on two others. They've run into resistance. The watermen don't like these. They consider it a waste of money that they think basically Mother Nature and their own dredging of the bottom will help. Uh, the science on that is does not really show the, the dredging part of it at all. Uh, we've seen a, an uptick in the oyster uh, abundance lately. There's been a couple of good natural reproduction years. Uh, the weather conditions and everything else have been just right. So there is an uptick in the oyster harvest, but we're a long way from, from full oyster restoration and will be for, for a good long while. Tim, I know that there was an issue about dead zones within the bay. Are we seeing them increase or are we seeing them decreased? They have decreased some over time. Again, they wax and wane and, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the heavy rains and all that uh, from 2018 to 2019 did not help. But the general thrust is that the, the dead zone has shrunk some and it doesn't last as long in the, in the deep trough of the bay. That being said, there's still lots of water quality issues out there. Lack of clarity, uh, decline in underwater grasses, which are important uh, habitat for crabs and fish. Uh, so, you know, so it's, it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. Gentlemen, I want to get out of here on this. How soon could we see some results or is this still a long way off? Uh, Joel, what about you? Will we see some actual results soon in, if this Biden administration infrastructure bill kicks in? I think that the problems in the Bay have been created over such an incredibly long time that it will take a, a long time to to take care of those issues to you know how long is it going to take to as tim was saying replenish the oyster population how long will it take to replenish the underwater grasses it may look a little better in a relatively short time but as far as getting back to where we want to be it's going to take a while tim what about this whole idea that if we could only um upgrade our sewage wastewater treatment plants, we would have a cleaner bay. Is that is that in the offing at any time? Well, they've done all the major wastewater plants already, all the large ones, and they've all been upgraded to what's called enhanced nutrient removal. Uh, that's where our flush tax bay restoration fund money that you pay every year in your water and sewer bill or on your property tax has gone. Um, the challenge now is to make sure that they stick to their permits. We had some problems here uh, uncovered lately by uh, the nonprofit group Blue Water Baltimore that Maryland Department of Environment acknowledged uh, with the two largest plants in the state, Back River and, and Patapsco in the city, uh, where they were out of whack for more than a year, uh, poor maintenance and lack of staff and, and operations. The bigger challenge is, is dealing with that runoff. All this money coming in, 
could help. It could help pay for more pollution control practices, pay farmers to plant trees along streams to restore the, the riparian buffers. The question is, can that happen in four years? That's all that's left before the 2025 deadline of the latest Bay Agreement. I think it's probably going to be a requirement. We're going to need to, it's going to be a real test of how quickly they can do that. But the fact is that we're probably going to miss that deadline in a, a number of key ways. And then the question is, what, what will the new agreement say? And will there be a new deadline or will we simply acknowledge that this is going to be a never-ending task? That's Tim Wheeler. He is the associate editor and senior writer at the Bay Journal. And I've also been joined by Joel McCord of WYPR. He covers environmental issues in the state. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here on Future City. Thanks for having us, Charles. Good to be with you, Charles. I've been talking to WYPR's environmental reporter, Joel McCord and Tim Wheeler the associate editor and senior writer at the Bay Journal. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't you go away. When we come back, I'll speak with a pair of grassroots activists. Mike Ewall is with the Energy Justice Network, and Fred Tupman is the Patuxent Riverkeeper. Ewall and Tupman have been sounding the alarm for years about air and water pollution. They'll tell you what they've seen and potential solutions to intractable problems we've not been able to solve. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson. And you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're looking at how we can achieve clean air and water. Maryland is set to receive a once-in-a-lifetime infusion of cash from the Biden administration to improve infrastructure. Joining me for this part of the conversation is Mike Ewall. He's with the Energy Justice Network, a grassroots organization. I'm also joined by Fred Tupman. He is the Patuxent River Keeper. Welcome back to Future City. I'm Charles Robinson. For this next segment, we're going to be talking with some people who are directly on the ground dealing with air and water. First up is Mike Ewall. He's with the Energy Justice Network. It's a grassroots organization and a community liaison group. Additionally, we're going to be talking with Fred Tutman. And guess what? He's the Patuxent Riverkeeper. So let's begin, gentlemen. Mike, you're dealing with a lot of issues regarding incinerators. Let's talk a little bit about that. How much pollution are they putting into our air? Oh, gosh. Well, trash incinerators in a lot of communities are the largest or close to the largest air polluter in any city or county that we look at across the country. In Maryland, we see that they're the largest air polluter in the city of Baltimore and Baltimore County combined. Um, That's the big smokestack that says Baltimore on the side when you drive through um, Baltimore on 95. Um, There's also a trash incinerator in Montgomery County, Maryland, and that's the largest air polluter in Montgomery County. And there are a lot of them in the region and throughout the country where you can say it's the largest air polluter in that county, and it will be true. 
um, because they're just a really filthy fuel. They're dirtier than coal power plants um, for producing the same amount of energy. I want to ask, what kinds of pollutants are they putting into the air? And what kind of effects are is it happening on people itself? Sure. So they're putting all sorts of things out, things that you would recognize from coal power plants and other combustion sources. Um, they're putting out nitrogen oxides that trigger asthma attacks. They're putting out sulfur dioxide that also causes respiratory problems, um, particulate matter that causes strokes and heart attacks, COPD. They're putting out toxic chemicals like dioxins, which are the most toxic chemicals known to science, most of which you get from eating meat and dairy because it climbs up the food chain. Um, you've got mercury, lead, arsenic, things that affect the brain, development, birth defects, all sorts of health problems connected to these chemicals that are being put out. So it's not just the fact that they're also two and a half times as bad as coal plants for global warming, but the immediate health problems to residents is, is pretty sincere or severe, rather. Um, in Baltimore, we have um, very high rates of asthma and other diseases. And given that they're the largest contributor of any industrial source, um, that's been a big priority for us to get that closed down. Thanks a whole lot, Mike. Fred Tupman is a riverkeeper, or let me be clear, Fred Tupman is the Patuxent Riverkeeper. First of all, Fred, I need you to explain to the audience, what is a riverkeeper? And is that just because you paddle up and down the Patuxent? No, a riverkeeper is an activist. We try to connect communities along the river to work on water-based activism. Uh, sometimes it's a little broader than water, but for the most part, I would say we serve local communities on a single tributary to try and build a movement to protect the water for people who live there. I've got to believe that you get the first signs of problems. Tell us what some of those first signs are and tell us what you see as you move through the waterway. So a lot of our work is really responding to complaints that people call us on our toll-free number and we go and investigate those complaints. But we also work very closely with local communities that are trying to solve a particular problem, a community located next door to a coal burning power plant or a community with too many burdens of various sorts. We try and ally ourselves with where the worst problems can be found in these watersheds. That's kind of where we think the most important work and the most durable work is going to be because the communities get to own the outcome. We really try to empower communities to fight their own fights. Fred, I know that one of the first signs of issues are fish kills. First of all, how prevalent are fish kills these days and what's causing fish kills? So there's a whole range of stuff that might cause a fish kill. Deoxygenated water, sometimes there's less oxygen in water that's hot. So a discharge from a factory or from some other facility could result in a, in a fish kill. Uh, poisons and toxins can also kill fish as well. So I don't know if there's a, a single soundbite answer to what would cause a fish kill. It's, it's many cuts, like these rivers generally, any number of things that might create that. So that's one sign, you know, but you don't have to be a scientist to also know when water is not potable and not clean, right? Your nose, your senses, your observational skills will generally tell you exactly that there's something wrong with the water near you. Mike, I want to go back to you. Obviously, you've identified pollutants that are in the air. I can tell you that there are a number of efforts out there to try and, if you will, scrub these smokestacks. How effective do you see them? And are there an, an impediment to, if you will, 
decrease the amount of pollutants in the air. A lot of people think, well, gee, there are these widgets on the smokestack. They have scrubbers. Therefore, what they're putting out is healthy or safe. And that is simply not true. When the state of New York did a study um, about 10 years ago, they looked at the eight coal power plants that they still had operating, which are all shut down now, versus the 10 much smaller um, in energy generation, but the 10 trash incinerators that are still operating in New York. And they found that even with the fact that these trash incinerators are younger, have more pollution control devices on them, they are still dirtier by almost every single measure. There was one pollutant that was dirtier for coal plants, but the trash incinerators were dirtier on every other pollutant, despite having additional pollution controls and the so-called modern ones and supposedly meeting the modern limits. And they were still dirtier than coal power plants. So there's no such thing as, oh, let's put better widgets on the smokestack and somehow it's acceptable because the limits are not based on health and safety in the first place. They're technology-based standards and they're also size-based. So if you have a 500 ton per day trash incinerator, it can be allowed to put out a certain amount. But if you have a 3,500 ton per day trash incinerator, like the one in Chester, Pennsylvania, where some of Maryland's waste is burned in a community of color, that is allowed to put out seven times more pollution just because it's bigger. It has nothing to do with there being a certain amount that's unhealthy for a community. So we recognize that these technologies don't exist or don't need to exist anywhere. There are better alternatives and we need to just replace them with those better alternatives, not try to spend more money on fixing smokestacks. I want to tie together what's happening in the air to what's going into the water. Fred, I'm guessing that some of those smokestacks around this state and specifically where you are, are also affecting water quality as well. Well, sure. There's deposition of all kinds of chemistry that comes out of those smokestacks and it gets distributed over the water, mercury in particular, but there are other contaminants that can find their way in. I mean, these resources are all connected. It's not like there's water over here and there's you know, land over here and there's air. They really are organically connected. What happens on one generally affects what happens on those others. That's the way it works. Mike, I know you've been trying to uh, assist communities of color across the, this, the country. Uh, tell me why many of these uh, um, incinerators and others pick these sites because there will be less opposition. There was a very telling study that came out in is going all the way back to 1984 in California, where they tried to build 43 trash incinerators in the state. And they hired a company called Sorrell Associates to figure out how can we overcome the opposition that we're seeing. And they went through a bunch of criteria and they found that certain communities are more or less likely to resist and they classified them. And race was not one of the factors in there. But everything else was so overlapping with race, including class, education, religion, other aspects that you can tightly see are interlinked. And the three trash incinerators that ended up getting built in California out of the 43 they aimed for were all in um, Latinx or Hispanic communities. So were all three hazardous waste landfills that were built in California also in those um, same type of communities. Um, which overlaps with the fact that Catholics are listed as less likely to resist, um, the high school less education, less likely to resist. All these things line up socially. So they didn't have to say we're going to target this community of color, even though that happens in a number of cases. And sometimes it leaks out how intentional it is. But they have a playbook and they've had it for decades and they know who they think is less likely to resist. 
And then when communities like Chester, Pennsylvania, which I've been working with for almost 30 years, push back and defeat many of them, they find out that, gee, maybe we were wrong about some of these communities. Um, but that is the stereotype that is put on. That's why we see that close to 80% of the largest 20 trash incinerators in the country are in communities of color. Um, the smaller ones, less so, but you find the bigger, more polluting ones and the concentrations in communities of color more than you, you would find otherwise. Fred, one of the things I know about the Patuxent River is, is that it flows into the Chesapeake Bay. A lot of folks say that the problems with the bay start in these tributaries. Can you talk to that for a little bit? I can not only talk about it, it's an important story because people forget that the Bay Protection Movement started on the Patuxent, literally. During the Hughes administration many years ago, they found they couldn't get environmental laws passed effectively in Annapolis as long as they affected a single tributary. The Patuxent was the leading fighter, right? A lot of citizen activists, a lot of lawsuits were filed on the Patuxent in the 1950s and 60s. Ultimately, the governor of Maryland said, you know, if we really want to protect the Patuxent, we're going to have to create a Chesapeake Bay movement so that everyone has a seat at the table. So that's why people call the Patuxent the most studied river in America. Chesapeake Bay in miniature has a little bit of everything on it that you'll find anywhere in the Chesapeake Bay. But ultimately, it was the Patuxent that led the charge for cleaning up local water. Now, the irony is, in 40 years of trying, we haven't cleaned up a single tributary in the Chesapeake Bay. <laughs> the Bay is about as bad off as it has ever been. So while we led the charge, now this movement is so diffuse and I think so defocused, you know, on the root causes of pollution that essentially we haven't managed to clean up much at all. Any of the gains that we've made have largely been rather fragile, depending on weather and things like that could change its fate, you know, any river's fate in a moment. I want to get out of here on this, gentlemen. I want you to look into the future. Tell me what our future looks like from your perspective. Mike, let's go to you first. What does what does our society look like if the smokestacks come down? Sure. Well, we're already starting to see that. We're seeing many coal power plants shut down because they can't compete with the cheaper cost of natural gas. We don't like natural gas either. We've done a lot to fight natural gas power plants and other infrastructure relating to it. And we're starting to see that that era of cheap gas is also coming to an end. And we're seeing that wind and solar are starting to take over everything. The main energy sources that are growing are wind and solar. And so we're going to see a time in the next five, 10 years where wind and solar become the main sources of energy that we have and add a little bit of energy storage to it to make it balance out. And we'll be able to replace these smokestacks um, as well as the nuclear power, trash incinerators, all these things that are harming communities. And I think if you go across other industries as well, the alternatives are growing, they're becoming more economically viable. And the big question is just going to be who's going to own and control it, where the materials coming from, how can we make these alternatives greener than they already are. But I think the old way is already heading out the door. Fred, if you look down the road, the Chesapeake Bay has received a D from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Can we improve not only the Patuxent River, but the actual Chesapeake Bay? I think we can, and I do think the action is in the local work on these tributaries and the local creeks and streams that eventually feed to the bigger water that's out there. But essentially, there's no overarching plan. Everyone's kind of sort of doing their best. And I think people have this kind of foggy idea that somehow rain barrels and recycling campaigns and things of that sort are going to lead them naturally towards cleaner water. The reality is the only way to clean these waters up is to stop putting stuff in them. 
to stop putting pollutants in them. And people keep trying, and the regulators in particular, keep trying to get around that. They keep trying to mitigate and trade and offset and find their way to make the math work on paper. The sad truth is the best way to save these rivers is going to be to get lots and lots of squeaky wheels. Really politicize, well-informed activist communities, get cleaner water. We live in a society where clean water and clean air are commodities and people pay the very best money they can afford in order to live in a place where they have clean air, water, and land. And that's not right, right? Because these things are supposedly things that belong to all of us. So really equity and justice are frames, are organizing principles that I think hopefully will lead us to a cleaner water, cleaner air, cleaner planet sort of future. But the corporate funded programs that you generally see don't naturally lead, I think, to a cleaned up universe. They actually clean up to make people feel a little better and they worry about their own stewardship, but not so much corporate stewardship. Right? There's some real problems that people have to work out, I think, in their minds in terms of what we're really doing. Are we really cleaning up these resources or are we really kind of greenwashing the spectrum so people can keep on making money the way they always have? I think that's really what's on the table. That's Fred Tupman. He is the Batuxent Riverkeeper. Also joining us has been Mike Ewall of the Energy Justice Network. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us on Future City. Delighted to be here. Thanks. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't you go away. When we come back, a conversation with the new executive director of Blue Water Baltimore, Tony Bridges. He'll share his vision for cleaner waterways and ideas on how you can join in on the process. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. I'm joined by Tony Bridges. He is the new executive director of Blue Water Baltimore. First of all, Tony, you've got a major challenge on your hand running the Blue Water Baltimore organization. Let's begin with this, though. Tell the audience who Blue Water is and what they do. First of all, thanks, uh, Charles, for having me on the program today. Definitely appreciate it. I am approximately six days in to being the executive director of Blue Water Baltimore, but really excited uh, about joining the staff and the stakeholders and the board for the work that they do, which I think is is really important for Baltimore, uh, for the Bay, uh, for, for the Chesapeake Bay, and just for the region. So uh, for Blue Water Baltimore, our mission is really about clean water and strong communities, if you think about it in, in those simple terms. Um, it's really, how do we restore the quality of Baltimore's rivers, the streams, and the harbor to really have a healthy environment, which produces a strong economy and, and thriving communities? And so for us, um, we do that in a number of ways, which we can get into, but you know, it's really about how, how we hold polluters accountable, how we monitor the water quality, um, and how we make sure that it's safe and clean and reliable uh, for the people who rely on, you know, the basics, which is just water, right? And so we do a number of things to, to make sure that it's a holistic approach um, for safe and clean water uh, to making that a reality in Baltimore. Tony, I want to talk about 
what's going on upstream because most of that flows downstream and then ends up in the Chesapeake Bay. What concerns do you have as to what's going on upstream, if you will? Yeah, you know, that's a a real problem because, you know, what happens upstream definitely flows into the Chesapeake Bay. And so we've got to come up with those solutions upstream in communities to make sure that that pollution doesn't continue to go downstream. So that may, that includes um, things such as expanding Baltimore's urban tree canopy, right, which is a huge part of um, what's needed in terms of tree cover and green spaces and black and brown communities across Baltimore um, so that, you know, we don't get that runoff going into going downstream from our communities. And so, you know, we've got a, a lot of work to do to make sure not only we are doing the work of producing a tree canopy, but also educating and engaging communities around what's happening so that they are also the uh, environmental uh, polluters uh, contributing to the things that are happening downstream. I note, Tony, that uh, for a number of years in Baltimore City, on the drains, there was anything you put in here ends up in the bay, which was a real simple idea. Give us some ideas as the new executive director you want to try and tackle or, or maybe even solve? For us, you know, we've, we've got a, a number of opportunities. Now, look at all this as opportunities and, and not really challenges. You know, we've got issues, especially as you look at climate change, issues in terms of um, intense and frequent rainstorms that are happening in the city, right? We've had more flooding than we've ever had, um, as well as sewage backups. And so it's important that we work with our partners in the city and, and as well as our communities to really prepare for a warmer climate and invest in those infrastructure changes um, that we need to, to be resilient communities in Baltimore City. The other thing is, you know, just collaboration, having a seat at the table with Baltimore City. I think Blue Water Baltimore does such a good job in working with communities that we've got a, a really good opportunity to, um, at the end of the day, hold polluters accountable and and you know, have a seat at the table with the city in doing that. And the other thing is our neighbors and our neighborhoods. You know, it, I don't think it's lost on anybody that I'm an African-American in charge of an organization like Blue Water Baltimore that does a lot in black and brown communities in Baltimore City. I think there's a real opportunity for uh, myself to be upfront leading in communities, uh, having a seat at the table and, and engaging communities in a conversation that we are not normally having, right? We don't normally talk about the environment. Um, and so, you know, in, in this role, I think there's a really good opportunity to um, get to communities, empower communities, um, and have them shape their own future. And, and I think that I have the opportunity to really have those meaningful conversations with communities of color, communities that look just like me, um, and and really bring them out to volunteer and engage in the activities and the work that needs to happen in their own communities. A lot of times what we do um, and, and what many organizations do, is we look for volunteers. And many times it's hard to get volunteers from their own the own community that we're in uh, to actually come out and do things like tree plantings. Um, you know, it, it's it, a lot of engagement needs to happen. And I am more than happy to, to be able to get down, assist, um, and engage communities, knock on doors, and really help them understand the challenges and the benefits of what's happening with the work that we're doing in their community. Because this is a partnership, right? It shouldn't be us just coming in and doing things in communities. We've got to make sure that we continuously 
engage and educate residents and help them understand that this is a benefit for them and, and we should really be their partner in helping them with the environmental challenges that they have in their neighborhood. I want to use a, a, a water metaphor here because you are blue water, <laughs> is that there's been suggestions that you need to prime the pump when it comes to introducing young people to the environmental movement. I'm wondering, is that plausible? You know, I think if you look over time, it's always the young people that are the ones that affect change the most, right? And so why isn't that plausible? Why shouldn't we be engaged in young people and the things that are happening in neighborhoods to shape generations to come, right? A tree planted in a neighborhood shades shades a neighborhood for many years. Like we'll be here for a certain amount of time, but those trees are going to be here longer than most of us. And so how do we make sure that we're engaging, um, you know, the youth to help them understand the benefits? Because the youth, I really feel like I've got young kids of my own. They tell me more about what's going on that they see and and um, are involved in than I ever thought of at that age. And so for me, it's really important to engage the youth, to educate them, because they're the ones that are educating us, uh, I don't consider myself a senior most of the time, but they consider me a senior. So I, I think it's important that we educate them um, so that they can educate those who may not be up to date on the environmental challenges, the climate solutions, the things that we need to do in neighborhoods. Um, and so, you know, it, it's youth are, are, to me, the key to, to making the investments that we need to protect the waterways and, and really make stronger communities. I note that you know, climatologists and other environmentalists have been ringing the bell for a while. Does that frustrate you? Not, I wouldn't say it frustrates me. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think there is a role for everyone to play. They can say the things that they say and, and you know, produce the science. But, you know, we, we've got to be able to, one of the things that I talked about, we did this Facebook Live yesterday, right? And one of the things I talked about in the Facebook Live, people, uh, one of the questions was, what's your superpower? What, what do you bring to the table that's, uh, that, that can help uh, in your role in Blue Water Baltimore? And it took me a while to actually think about that in terms of, so I, I asked my kids, like, what, what do you think daddy does that's special? What I finally got out of them was that I am able to break things down to the point that they understand. And I think that's important. And what's important about Blue Water Baltimore, we've got to meet people where they are. And that may mean that we're not talking at this high level about what's happening in terms of climate and, and um, the environment. It means, you know, breaking it down really to where they can understand why things are so important. And so everybody has a role to play. And I think our role is really important when it comes to engaging communities and educating those communities um, to make them understand or to help them to understand just what it means um, to have cleaner waterways and, and what it means to, you know, have a, a urban um, forest in a community and, and how that actually helps their community. So, you know, let, let's we'll stay in our lane um, and let everybody stay in theirs. One of the things that I would like for you to try and look down the road, if you will. What are some things we're likely to see? Obviously, we have this huge infrastructure bill. And a lot of money is going to go to organizations like yours and others to help with cleaning up not just the waterways, but the errors, air as well. 
what are some things that you see on the horizon that maybe the general public is not seeing? And I wouldn't say the general public isn't seeing it. I don't know if they they realize what's going on, right? And so if you just talk about the sewage backup and the flooding that's been happening, right? How do we make sure that with the funding that's happening at the federal government, we can do things to actually assist with infrastructure change so that we don't continuously have the flooding in our neighborhoods and the runoff that happens because of that flooding? How do we make sure that um, our infrastructure is in place so that we don't continuously have those sewage backups? And what does that mean with the federal dollars that are coming to um, you know the states and, and especially Baltimore City and the county? Like, How can we use that to make sure down the road we aren't continuously seeing the same neighborhoods flooding, the same sewage backups um, across the city? or the urban heat islands in neighborhoods, right? Um, you know, I, I keep going back to trees because one thing I, I really don't think people realize is that tree coverage and how how it, it helps with air quality and other environmental factors. And, you know, the urban heat island is no joke. You know, neighborhoods are affected by our innermost, inner city neighborhoods are affected by it the most. And that's why we have to be intentional about how we centralize our efforts on all that, whether we're talking about those trees, whether we're talking about um, you know infrastructure changes to help mitigate what's happening with the sewage backup or with um, the flooding that's happening in neighborhoods. We've got to really be intentional about how we address that with the federal dollars that are coming, because I'm not sure if we'll be able to see this uh, surge of money um, for, for years to come. And so working with our partners in the city and the state, we really have to be intentional so that there's a, a a lasting effect on what we see in terms of uh, mitigating uh, the issues that we're having in our neighborhoods. So when you plant a tree, you leave a legacy for our city. Uh, a tree planted in a neighborhood like Broadway East or Oliver or Cherry Hill provides shade for many years to come. Our volunteer tree plantings give community members a chance to really enact generational change. These tree plantings are open to the public, We've got many upcoming volunteer opportunities in the coming weeks, and you can all help us to do more together by visiting bluewaterbaltimore.org backslash events. So it's www.bluewaterbaltimore.org backslash events. Tony, I want to tell you that you've got some enormous challenges, but it sounds like you're up to the job. So thank you for joining us here on Future City. That's Tony Bridges. He's the new executive director of Blue Water, Baltimore. I don't think anyone would argue that we deserve clean air and water. How do we get there? Well, it's going to take a number of stakeholders from governmental agencies, businesses, and yes, listeners like you. It has taken us years to recognize the problem. Climatologists and environmentalists have warned us about greenhouse gases and what we put into our waterways. Having the will to change past practices always comes with risk. Let me suggest, these changes should be seen as opportunities. Let us bring together the brightest minds to tackle the challenges we face. The status quo is untenable. 
Let us not be the generation who just threw up their hands and said, we couldn't solve this problem. If for no other reason, we must do everything we can to leave a better world. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. We welcome your feedback and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at Future City, that's one word, at wypr.org. If you want to learn more about some of the people and the organizations you heard from today, or maybe you just want to listen to some of our past broadcasts, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer, Spencer Bryant, and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.